You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. I've been gone uh, for a few weeks. I just got back from Australia less than 48 hours ago. I'm preaching this morning. We'll see how this goes. One of the things I was uh, worried about is, if you know about the Southern Hemisphere, we have opposite seasons. And so while we have been uh, going into hot temperatures, preparing for summer here, uh, it's the opposite in Australia. And I was really worried about uh, the rain. You know, sometimes there's really heavy rains and and cold uh, weather. I don't know who was praying for me uh, in our trip here, but the weather was perfect. Yeah, the weather was perfect. There's a couple of pictures uh, of our family, the girls just loving uh, hanging out on the beach. One of the things, though, I, I never worry about when I go on vacation is I never worry about the church here, no matter how long I'm gone. And I hope it's not just because I'm really good at compartmentalizing my life. Uh, I, I genuinely believe it's because I really trust the pastors, the elders, the staff, and the awesome leaders that we have here. Can we celebrate? It's a strong team. We have an incredible team in place here at Hill City Church. So genuinely, I still haven't checked my work email. Monday morning, we'll see what disasters await, I guess. But uh, I, I don't check my work email. I really try to disconnect, and, uh, and, I, and I'm truly able to not really think about Hill City Church while I'm away, uh, especially in another part of the world. But I wanted to start today as we really dive into 1 Timothy. We're going to be going through the, the first few paragraphs with a hypothetical situation, okay? I want you to imagine this. Imagine that I'm on vacation in Australia, and even though I'm not checking my email, I start getting text messages or FaceTime calls with people from the church who know that they shouldn't bother me, and they're all saying the same thing. Did you hear the sermon while you were gone? And I, you know, and, and, and maybe I didn't. I didn't listen to the podcast, and at first I'm like, you know, try to ignore it, try to ignore it, but it's like a dozen people are contacting me and saying, so, like, something happened. I would start to be a little concerned about that, right? And so... I'd go back, I'd listen to the podcast, even though I'm thousands of miles away, maybe I'd watch the YouTube, and perhaps the person who was preaching one of the weeks while I was gone said something that would be considered heresy. And maybe they even knew exactly what they were doing, and they said something like, I wouldn't usually say this, but because Pastor Josh is gone, now's my chance. And they shared something that was very concerning to the central doctrines of the Christian faith. What would I do? What do you think I would do in that situation? I would probably open up my email, okay? Even though it's, got, it's against my like, vacation rules, Josh, I would probably open up my email. Uh, I would likely draft a church-wide email, address the situation. I would use technology, get on a Zoom call with the other pastors, with the elders, right? Talk through the situation. What's our plan of action? How are we going to handle this, right? 
I would be able to somewhat manage the situation though I'm far removed from it. Does that make sense? Now I want you to imagine that same hypothetical situation with no access to modern t digital technology. And instead of me being gone for a mere few weeks, maybe I'm gone for months or even perhaps years with no expected time of returning anytime soon. That is the situation into which Paul wrote the letter of 1 Timothy. He's, he's somewhere else. He's obligated. We don't know exactly what he's doing. Likely, he's not in prison like he is in many of the other letters that he wrote to the churches because he doesn't specifically mention it in 1 Timothy. He could be. He, it could be during one of his uh, stays in prison. Likely, he's on mission elsewhere. And so he sends this letter to Timothy to handle the situation of the false teaching taking place in the church in Ephesus. With that framework in mind, let's go ahead and jump in to Paul's letter to Timothy. We'll be starting off 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. We've got a lot of ground to cover this summer. It's one of the longest books we've ever gone through in the summer. So each week, we will also be covering a lot of ground in the sermon. So don't worry if I'm speaking very quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor, de nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. A few things to start off with the greeting that Paul gives to Timothy. First of all, it's an interesting way for Paul to refer to himself. Sometimes he refers to himself as an apostle by the will of God. Sometimes he doesn't even include the, the title apostle, right? That's kind of flexing your authority to, to call yourself an apostle. Sometimes he calls him a prisoner of Christ or a servant of Christ. But this is one of the strongest declarations, which is interesting because he's communicating with one of his closest friends, right? Does that seem a little odd? He's an apostle by the command of God. And he's writing to his buddy, when he's saying this. So something's going on here. This is a very interesting chosen title. Well, if you know anything about Paul's conversion story, if you're taking notes, jot down Acts chapter 9. You can read Acts chapter 9 later. That Paul was saved because Christ Jesus himself appeared to him on the road to Damascus when the apostle Paul was actually heading there to persecute Christians. And what's interesting about Paul's conversion story, it was, he was not only saved and forgiven from his sins, but at that very same time, he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles by God. And so Paul's saying here, he's like, I'm not an apostle by you know, my own career choice, by my own merit, by my own, good, you know, my, my own training or good works. I'm an apostle because God commanded me to be an apostle. And in 1 Timothy, we are going to encounter some difficult apostolic commands. And we must remember from the very beginning that 
the one who is giving those commands is himself under a command by God. And so that's why Paul, not uh, knowing that this letter would not only be read personally by Timothy at his house, it would be read publicly to Timothy, but in front of the entire congregation. So Paul is an apostle under God's command. The second thing is, who is it addressed to? It's addressed to Timothy, who he calls his true child in the faith. Now, what's interesting is, is Timothy is not Paul's child. He's not his biological child. Paul was never married. He didn't have any children of his own. And neither did Paul convert Timothy, as, he did many, as, as Paul did to many people, right? Likely, Paul baptized dozens, perhaps hundreds of people during his ministry. Timothy was not one of those converts. His faith was passed down to him from his grandmother and his mother. Strong Christian women discipling their child, right? And so why does he call him his true child in the faith? Well, we've talked about this before, that discipling someone includes both initially bringing them into that, the family of faith, baptizing them into the household of God, as well as taking someone who's young in the faith, or maybe there's immaturities, and growing them to mature in the faith. That is the role in which Paul played as a spiritual parent to Timothy. You can read about this if you're taking notes. Acts 16. Will you read these later? I won't, I won't tell you the, the verses if you don't read it. Acts chapter 16, read it later. Paul is traveling through Lystra on one of his missionary journeys. He encounters Timothy, and he's impressed. This is a young guy who takes his faith in Jesus very seriously. And so Paul actually invites Timothy to join him as a missionary. And so Paul disciples him. And one of the reasons why he puts his apostolic stamp of approval, his own personal endorsement upon Timothy, is because he wants the church in Ephesus to respect this guy. He's like, I'm not going to be there myself, but you better listen to Timothy. He's my true child in the faith. We would say it like this. I taught that boy everything he knows. Everything he knows. And what he says, he's, he, he's representing me. And so Timothy is the one delegated to Ephesus to handle the situation. This would be similar as me uh, in that situation, the hypothetical situation, if I was able to communicate with Jake, our associate pastor, assuming that Jake is not the source of heresy. <laughs> Where, did you picture that? I wasn't, that wasn't what I was trying to say. Jake's a great preacher. I wasn't trying to accuse him of anything there. But, but this, is, this is what I would do. If I wasn't able to come back and handle the situation, I would try to contact Jake. And I would give him the game plan. This is what you have to do to deal with the conflict, to deal with the false teaching. And, and Timothy's got his work cut out for him. He's not super old. He can't grow a great beard, likely, just like me. And, uh, and he's in Ephesus. People are educated. People are smart. There's riots in Ephesus. One of the things we know about Ephesus, there was a significant riot and uh, you can read about the beginnings of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapters 19 and 20. Take notes. Acts chapters 19 and 20. Paul himself did not plant the church, but he was foundational in, in, in the beginnings of the church 
in Ephesus. We're not sure exactly how the church started there, but in Acts chapter 19, when Paul rolls into Ephesus on a missionary journey, there's believers already. People already believe in Jesus, at least in some ways. They haven't actually been baptized into Christ Jesus. They've been baptized with John the Baptist's baptism, which is a, which is a great baptism, a baptism of repentance, turning your life around, right? Confessing your sins, turning your life around. But they didn't quite have the fullness of the gospel. And so what Paul did is when he came, he already started off by correcting their teaching. Oh, you're, you're still doing John's baptism. No, 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 we're baptizing the Christ. And he baptized the believers in Ephesus. He laid his hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And that, was, that wasn't necessarily starting the church, but he was a foundational player in the church. He stayed in Ephesus for a few years. And by this point in time, we're only a handful of years removed from that. The main point, scholars pretty much agree that the main point of 1 Timothy, the letter, is stated clearly in 1 Timothy 3.15. If you're, if you're there, you can actually put a little star next to it. This is the main point of the letter. If I delay... Paul speaking, you may know, Timothy, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So the false teaching is disintegrating the pillar of truth, which the church is called by God to be. If somebody's going to hear truth in this confused and mixed up world, where do they need to hear it? Right here. We are called to be a pillar of truth. And so false teaching has a way of eroding, disintegrating, crumbling away at the very household of God. People are walking away from a faith in the gospel. And the the thing that's tragic about this is that Paul, during his ministry in Ephesus, already saw this coming. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 29 through 30. Paul addresses the elders in Ephesus before he departs to Jerusalem. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, speaking to the elders, from among your own eldership will arise men speaking twisted things. Why are they speaking them? to draw away the disciples after them. We don't know if Paul saw this, practically speaking, in some of the character traits of the Ephesian leadership. Maybe, maybe he just, he's, he's predicting this because he's, he's kind of playing it out in his mind. He's started to warn them against this person, against that person. You, you really need to keep a close eye on them. Or perhaps prophetically, the Holy Spirit perhaps directly revealed to Paul And here they are, a handful of years, four or five years after Paul has left. That's not very long. And this prophecy is already being fulfilled in the most tragic way possible. R. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell say this, unbelievable. The Ephesian church had drunk from the pure stream apostolic teaching. There could be no better water than that. God's word from a writer of God's word. Think about that. Is it it because Paul was not a great pastor during that three-year period? Was it because he was already unclear on the gospel during his ministry in Ephesus? 
And just think about that. Only a few years removed from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Already, false teachers, those fierce wolves, they've arisen. They're drawing many people after their own false doctrines. And I just have to tell you, this is why we cannot neglect the pastoral letters in the New Testament. They're often neglected, by the way. As we'll see this summer, there are some difficult passages we're going to deal with this summer. Who's excited about that, by the way? Anyone? You're like, let's, let's get to the controversial stuff. Okay. There's difficult, they're often neglected. This is why we cannot neglect even difficult passages of Scripture. If the Ephesian church is not immune from poisonous teaching, neither are we. And, and I'm just here to say, Paul, I'm, I'm no preacher compared to the Apostle Paul, okay? He's an apostle. He's an inspired writer of God's word. And so just think about that. And if the Ephesians, I mean, just think about today. We've got podcasts, YouTube, digital media, blog posts. Anyone can say anything and it can go viral. And we encounter this so much, many voices, but few people are able to discern and distinguish truth from false teaching. And that's why I'm so excited for God to use this letter in the life of our church this summer. Continuing in verse five. The aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, again, he's not, he's not naming them yet, right? Let's say certain people, certain persons, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, this is going to drive some of you nuts, okay? You ready? I'm going to be like cards on the table. We don't know exactly what the false teachings are. Does that drive anyone? It kind of drives me nuts, honestly. And the reason being is because, does Timothy know what the false teachings are? Of course, he's already there in Ephesus. Does the church in Ephesus know what the false teachings are? Yes, they're hearing it every Sunday, right? And so Paul, when he's writing a letter to a church, this is one half of the conversation. Does that make sense? So he doesn't feel the need to instruct the church on the false doctrines, which might be a little confusing, by the way, if he's writing to them in clarity about all the false teachings. They might, Wait, is he into this stuff or not? What he's going to do is he's just going to address how to handle, how to deal with false teachings. And while that might be a little bit frustrating to some of us, here's what we do know about the false teachings. We know where those false teachings lead. We know what they result in. Here's a quick overview just from 1 Timothy alone. In 1 Timothy 1.19, we'll look at this next week. Alexander and Hymenaeus, what happened to their faith? They shipwrecked their faith. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. It's demonic. This is part of the plan of the enemy. 1 Timothy 5.15. Some have already strayed after Satan. Who's the father of lies anyways? Right? Satan, the devil. It's part of his plan. Can I sprinkle a little bit of false doctrine, a little bit of heresy in the church? And sure enough, it's working in Ephesus at this point in time. 1 Timothy 6.10, some have already wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves of many pangs. The word pangs is, is, is fierce pain. And then the book concludes in 1 Timothy 6.21, they've swerved from the faith. 
Do you get the idea of where these lead? Where do the false teachings lead? Away from God. Away from God, away from the gospel. And so when we talk about heresy, I know I'm going to use that word a lot today and and, and likely throughout the entire series, just a little bit of clarity on the word heresy. That word should only be reserved for very serious doctrinal disagreements. We're not talking about secondary theological debates or discussions, which, by the way, there's plenty of those. There's plenty of uh, what we call non-essential issues that are really kind of gray zones in Scripture. And it doesn't matter. You could have two very educated, smart, academic, even spirit-filled scholars who disagree on some secondary issues. But when we're talking about heresy, the kind of things we're talking about are the things that get us to a different gospel. It's a great way to summarize what is heresy. Some people call it, is it a salvation issue? But really what they're talking about is, does it fundamentally change the gospel? The nature of Jesus Christ, is he the Christ, the Son of the living God? Is scripture trustworthy? Can we even believe this to begin with? Or are we eroding the very foundation of our faith? How many ways are there to God anyways? Is there one way, one truth, one life, right? Those Those are these things that we would say are central to our understanding of the gospel. And and the church in Ephesus was not alone in this. Many of the letters in the New Testament are actually addressing, at least in some fashion, false teaching or heresy. Galatians uh, 1, verses 6 through 7 says it very clearly, also written by the Apostle Paul. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to what? A different gospel. That's why I think the best definition of heresy is does it lead to a different gospel? And then he goes on to say this. Not that there is one. You realize how many gospels are there? There actually is only one. There's only one true gospel. It's not like, what's your version of the gospel sound like? There's only one gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the truth of Christ. So how do you know? That's really our question. How do you know that I'm not a false teacher? How do you know who you should listen to? It's very confusing in our modern age. Like I said, this is especially tricky when we are flooded with an endless buffet of online ideologies. If you want to believe it, you can find a Wikipedia article that backs you up. You can find a blogger. You can find a YouTube channel to subscribe to. You can find those kinds of voices. Well, we're going to answer this question really in depth this summer. It's part of the reason why Paul gives very strict criteria for eldership. You have to look at the person's life, right? You have the benefit when you listen to me. You know me. You know my family. You can see how I interact. This is the danger of when we only interact with a Bible teacher online. It's the danger of that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen to authors or podcasters or bloggers. I'm fans of all of those kind of things, but this is why it's very careful. You don't actually know them. You only know what they say. You only know their message. But Paul, in fact, here at the very beginning, has already given us a really helpful framework to measure how do I know who I should listen to? If you're taking notes, four questions, okay? These are very helpful four questions. He's given us these four different terms. Instead of the false gospel or the false teaching leading away from God, he's actually told us the result of what sound doctrine leads to. 
It leads to love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So let's break those four things down. The first one is, is this person, is this teacher or this author helping me love God and others? What did Jesus summarize? How did he summarize, Jesus summarize the law and the prophets? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Jesus taught us in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. And so we have to really ask the practical question is when I'm following this person's teaching, when I'm listening to their sermons, when I'm reading their books, am I becoming critical of others, self-righteous, mean, arrogant, divisive? We're starting to get into the works of the flesh, by the way, not the fruit of the spirit. Or am I becoming a person of love? Because your teaching's not working if it's not making you a person of love. Because that's the goal of the whole lot. That's the goal of the Old Testament, Jesus said, is to become a person who loves God and loves your neighbor as yourself well. Preston Sprinkle, uh, author and, and teacher, says it like this. We can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, then we're wrong. And I think there's a lot of people who, are, who have tons of answers to Bible questions, but it doesn't lead to, to people of love. And so that's the very first question. I think it's a very, very important question. But that's not the only question, by the way, because there's many kinds of teaching that could lead people to be you know, genuinely kind of accepting and loving and affirming of all different kinds of behaviors and worldviews. The second question is, does it lead to a pure heart? Am I more holy because I follow them? Can you say the word holy? Proper teaching leads us away from sin and towards righteousness. It should lead us to a pure heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so proper Bible teaching, proper understanding of scripture should convict you of sins, right? It should. And it should confront us like a crystal clear mirror to see our own brokenness as it truly is, so that we can encounter the grace of the gospel anew. So that we can see, receive God's grace and his mercy, which is new every single morning. Maybe you've, you've wondered what the will of God is for your life. Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more holy. By the way, that after you become a follower of Jesus, after you're welcomed into the household of God, you're fully forgiven from your sins, but you're, you're still a little bit of a work in progress, right? Are you? Yes. I am. I'm a pastor, okay? I am. And so the, the process now of having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is learning to follow Jesus with everything and submit your entire life to Christ. Beware, church, beware of teachers who make you feel good about your sins. If you are reading an author right now, listening to a podcast right now, watching a YouTube channel right now that is giving you justifications for why you can keep living a sinful life, you need to unfollow that thing as fast as possible. Beware if the teaching is not leading to a pure heart. That's question number two. All right, question number three. Does it lead to a good conscience? Now, a good conscience, we tend to think about our, our, own, our own conscience, but really here's the question. Would God and the church approve of this person's teaching? 
And the reason I say God in the church is when we think of our conscience, what do we think of? The little cricket, you know, the little voice whispering in your ear, your own thoughts. And this is actually contrary, by the way, to a biblical idea of what your conscience is. Jeremiah taught us to beware of the heart because it's deceitful above all things. See, the idea of a good conscience means that you have an inner moral approval from God and his people. It's like a communal idea that you should check that inner voice with God and check it with the trusted assembly of believers. And so this isn't, this isn't, again, don't just take one of these questions. We have to take all of these questions together. But false teachers are generally people who have fringe ideas. They found some secret interpretation that in the last 2,000 years of all of church history and Bible teaching and training and theology, no one else has found that verse and read it the way that they found it. They've unlocked it. I think that's exactly what's going on in Ephesus. What are these genealogies and myths? They're finding secret interpretations of the Old Testament law, and they're twisting it, and they're using it to justify sin, to draw people away from, from living a holy life before God. In 1 Timothy 4, 2, Paul describes the false teachers not as people who have a good conscience. He says their consciences have been seared. Do you know what that means? Burned to a crisp. They have, they're, they're calloused to hearing outside opinion, to hearing someone challenge them or rebuke them using scripture. And so beware of teachers who kind of pull you aside and say, I'll tell you the real truth. I'll tell you the real story. You're not gonna hear this anywhere else because the reality is, if we truly believe in the Holy Spirit indwelling all believers, you should hear the gospel more than just at our church, Right? We believe in, in, in the universal church, the, the capital C church, the global church. We're not the only Christians on planet Earth doing it right. And then the fourth question, question number four, has to do with a sincere faith. Is this person strengthening my faith? Are they strengthening my faith? Maybe they are helping you become a more loving and accepting person, but they're actually disintegrating your faith in Jesus. They're drawing you away. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Is your faith being edified is the word, but it's being built up by listening, by reading, by watching that kind of person. I can't tell you the amount of, uh, the amount of people who have deconstructed their faith because of online personalities that they don't know who those people are because they just resonate. I was talking to another pastor one time about people who he personally discipled for years, and there was a comedic YouTube personality, like a comedy personality on YouTube, not a faith-based YouTuber, like a, 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 joke, a joker online who just shared their own deconstruction story, and that, that student that this other pastor had discipled for years and years and years decided to trust that YouTuber over the pastor who had literally poured blood, sweat, and tears into, into discipling the next generation. We've got to really wrestle with these questions. They might be catchy. That person might be a little charismatic. They might be, they, they, they might be easy to listen to, easy to follow. You might, they might sound like they just get you when no one else does, but are they actually building up your faith? Or are they sowing seeds of dissension? 
Those are the four questions. We're going to find out some more ways as we continue to journey through 1 Timothy to identify false teachers. But those are four really good questions to start asking today. You can ask those questions today. As we continue through the text, 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. A little bit of a play on words there. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God in which I have been entrusted. That phrase at the end there, sound doctrine, is the Greek word hugiaino. And it's where we get our word hygiene from. Do you want to guess what it means? It means clean, healthy, healthy doctrine. That's what we're looking for. When we talk about sound doctrine, we're talking about healthy doctrine, healthy reading of scripture. Not just healthy in the nature of it, but healthy in what it produces. Here's the point. Here's our point for today. Diseased teaching will never produce a healthy church. Diseased teaching, by the way, might produce a large church. It might produce a church with a lot of money in the bank. It might even produce a church where people have these these grand experiences. But diseased teaching will never produce healthy disciples or a healthy church. In 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy, he compares the heresy that's still going on to gangrene. A nasty disease that spreads, right? That's what false doctrine, that's what heresy is. And it's not just the Apostle Paul, by the way. Jesus was concerned about doctrine. For some of you, you're like, okay, I'm not super concerned with this whole discussion about false teaching. Well, buckle up. We're going to be in First Timothy all summer, okay? But Jesus Christ himself was very much concerned. Because here's the, here's the deal. What you believe determines how you live. It just does. You don't live any kind of life on the outside which doesn't first find itself on your inside, your beliefs, your convictions, your will. In Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven, of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What's crazy is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were religious leaders. The Ephesian False teachers are religious leaders. Now, it's, it's likely very different, right? The Pharisees, they, they were hyper-legalistic. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in, in very spiritual things. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. I'm not saying that the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the same false teaching that we find miles and miles away, in Ephes- all the way in Ephesus, right? I'm not saying that. Here's what I am saying. Is they both know the Bible. I've been astounded. I'm a pastor, obviously, but online I, I say that. Like, one of the, you know, on my social media profile, one of the first things is like, pastor. So, needless to say, the algorithm, you know what the algorithm is? It's like the, the formula that social media uses to show you things that you might like. I see Christian things, okay? All the Christian marketing thing, all the like new brands and the whatever. And, and occasionally I come across like online Bible teachers. You would be shocked if you haven't seen it already, 
that there are online Bible influencers who look like Christian leaders. They wear, they look better than I do. They wear like better clothes than I do. They seem trustworthy. If you were to just look at them, you'd be like, I'd trust that person. I'd listen to that person. Until you actually dive into the doctrines that they're sharing. And these people have millions of views, millions of followers. So just because someone can quote a few verses here and there, maybe they even know the Bible really well. The question is, what are they doing with it? Are they a humble servant of God's word? That's what the apostles, by the way, said. We can't serve tables because we're so busy serving in the ministry of God's word. Or are they twisting it? Are they using it? Are they chopping bits out of it? Are they scratching verses out here and highlighting other verses there? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says this. Here's Jesus' standard to measure whether someone is a false teacher or not. Matthew 7, 15 to 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, what are they? Ravenous wolves. Same title, by the way, that Paul gave the false teachers in Ephesus. Ravenous wolves. Why? Because they don't care about you. They want to devour you. They want to tear you away. They want to destroy you. What does Jesus say? How will we know these people? You will recognize them by their fruits. This is the danger in not knowing someone that you listen to, is you cannot examine that person's life properly. And it happens all the time, by the way. Authors or or famous pastors that, that perhaps we followed for years, all of a sudden, tragedy strikes. And we find out a scandal, maybe a scandal that's been hidden for decades. But we shouldn't be surprised because you don't, we don't know those people, right? And this is why you have to not just listen to someone's words, you must look at their life, measure their life. Not to be critical of their life, not to be hypercritical of people, but so that you can figure out, is this person worth following? Should I listen to their words if their life is full of hypocrisy? And then the second thing that you can measure is not just their own fruits, but I believe the fruits of their followers. And when I say that, I mean don't just count someone's followers, because you can, ha- you can gain a lot of followers by saying something that tickles people's ears, that people want to hear, right? You can gain large gatherings. You don't want to count someone's followers, you want to weigh them. You know what I mean? You want to weigh them. Measure the maturity that someone's followers demonstrate. Because healthy teaching, it makes us holy. It makes us holy. It produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so what Paul does here is he's showing that the false teaching in Ephesus is leading to what Paul does oftentimes in his New Testament letters. He gives us what's called a vice list. And these aren't just, this isn't like a list of fun things that you should do. This is a list of sins that we should stay away from. Sins that we should run away from. But the false teaching is leading to those behaviors. Now, we don't have nearly enough time to go through every single one of these sins one by one and talk about why it's a sin. You could just, it's, these are sins, the things that, that Paul is talking about. And by the way, there are many things on this list that popular Christian teaching has found a way to somehow justify and say it's no longer a sin anymore. So read through that list and just beware of teachers who are trying to tell you that things that the Bible explicitly states is sinful, 
They're trying to reroute scripture, redefine certain terms, and tell you it's now permissible, it's now acceptable. But the reality is, the irony behind this sin list is many of the items on this list found, find their basis in the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you caught that. Talking about murder, talking about disobedience of parents, talking about sexual immorality, talking about, steal, right? You think about all these kind of things, lying and, and bearing false witness. The irony is that the Ephesian heresy is a bunch of teacher, uh, teachers claiming to be experts in the law, and they can't even get the Ten Commandments right. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying they're literally teaching you to break the most basic of God's commands, the most ancient of God's commands. And so we need something better than this toxic poison, perverse, unhealthy, unsound heretical teaching. What do we need? We need the gospel of glory. We need the gospel of glory. See, I want to read this passage one more time. The gospel of glory is the reality that we are all, we all find ourselves on that list, don't we? We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And, and, and for us, this summer is not about becoming experts and heresy hunters. That sounds like a bad HGTV miniseries. On this week's episode of Heresy Hunters, we're traveling, you know, whatever. We don't, this isn't about, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? This is not about gaining knowledge so that we can use these. Look at all these sins and we can use them as ammunition. Look at your, this is, this is a mirror, look at yourself. And I want to read, the gospel of glory is this, is that Jesus died for the lawless and the disobedient. Jesus died for the ungodly and the sinners. Jesus died for the unholy and profane. Jesus died for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Jesus died for the murderers. Jesus died for the sexually immoral. Jesus died for men who practice homosexuality. Jesus died for enslavers, people who had slaves. Jesus died for liars. He died for perjurers. And he died as a catch-all for whatever else. So if you don't see yourself in that list, whatever else. Whatever's your sin, Jesus died for you. This is the gospel of glory. Is that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. He lived a perfect life. He died for your sins on the cross. And he's willing to forgive you, to show grace and mercy to you. Would you trust him with your life? He rose three days later from the grave in a victory over sin, death, and the devil. And the gospel leads us to selfless love, to service, to health. This is the good news of the gospel. And so today, if you've never received the gospel, I want to invite you. Today can be the day that you receive the gospel of grace by faith. Put your faith in Jesus. Follow him into the waters of baptism. Ask God to forgive your sin and, and cleanse your life. You can find out more information about baptism online. We'd love for you to sign up. We'd love to celebrate with you. For those of you who are already there, you already have a faith in Jesus. Paul says here that the gospel of glory has been entrusted to him. Do you get the idea that Paul takes the gospel flippantly, casually? Paul takes the gospel more seriously than anything. He says, man, this is the gospel of glory which has been entrusted to me. Here's the good news for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, God not only entrusted 
the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, God has entrusted the gospel of glory to you. You may not be a capital A apostle, but that word apostello literally just means to be sent or commissioned, and Jesus Christ himself has commissioned all believers, all disciples, to go and make more disciples. So here's how I want to close today. Spread the true gospel, false teaching, lies, half-truths, those things are spreading like wildfire in our digital age today. You want to know what we, can, what we want to see spread? We want to see the true gospel, the gospel of glory spread. This is the only thing that can produce salvation for the world. This is the only thing that can save us from our sins. This is the only thing that can make us healthy and whole and holy again. This is the gospel of glory in which you have been entrusted. Would you spread the true gospel in your life. Let's stand and worship our God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.